So when I was a child, my posture towards my folks was one mostly of not wanting to do things that would get me into trouble. I knew my folks cared for me and they provided a very safe and loving home, but they were also very strict about certain things. And in my child's mind, that meant I needed to perform to earn their approval. And while they always told me their love was unconditional, as a child, that's a massive concept to try to grasp, right? So we're very concrete children are, very here and now. And so all I knew is that when I was good, they were happy and they treated me very nicely and kind. And when I was bad, they weren't happy and I would get in a lot of trouble. So in a child's mind, that was sort of what love was. No one was to blame for that, but nevertheless, the appeasement way of living became very natural. And this is what we've been talking about since we started Galatians. Appeasement theology versus theology of grace. And we are all, in our DNA, have this appeasement thing. And then as children, it's really hard to understand the difference. This is why I love the way Eugene Peterson has nailed the translation of this verse. That's behind me if you've read that. So then I get older, and as children do, and, and all of us do, I began to develop deeply subconscious desires to be loved for who I am and not to be loved for what I do. And I think that's the underlying for all of us, maybe, maybe mostly unknown to us, but it's the underlying desire of all of us. I think this is exactly what Pascal, the French theologian, was getting at when he said there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human soul. I think what he meant is that we all desire to be loved unconditionally. And only God can do that. Only God is capable of loving us with a pure, unconditional love. And this is exactly what Paul was dealing with in Galatia. All these people had finally discovered, through Paul's message, that they are loved without condition. It's all about God's love for them and grace. And then the religious leaders were coming, and they were dragging them back. Excuse me. They were dragging them back into appeasement. And as we often do, as I was growing up, I started to rage against those things which kept me enslaved to an appeasement theology. I subconsciously figured that if I couldn't be loved for who I was, then I'll just act in an incredibly unlovable way. Right? That's the classic form of rebellion. We all do it, even though we know it really doesn't get us anywhere. It's sort of like, you know, the immaturity of mind and spirit is why we rebel and react like that. It's like when, you, when your kid wants two cookies and you give them one, and they throw a flip and don't even eat the one, right? Well, then I'm not, a, well, that did a lot of good for you. You didn't even get a cookie, right? So we have all this way of rebelling that really doesn't do anything, but that's just what happens in an immaturity of spirit and mind. So if you're not going to love me for who I am, then I'll be a real jerk, and then I will feel better for not being loved. You see, that's sort of how that goes. But remember, I was loved. I know that. But the narrative of our lives is an appeasement narrative. And as a child, that's really hard to break out of. And so we are slaves to. So I was blind to this greater reality. I, my folks really did love me, but I was very blinded to that. And so I wanted to break out of this. 
Interestingly, it was during a very particularly ugly episode of Radical Rebellion that I was actually, I saw this unconditional love that they had always told me about. Now, for some of you have heard this story before, so I'm not going to go into the details, but basically, for those who haven't, you'll pick up enough just from a short telling of this. When I was in my late teens, I, I, at that time in my life, I was experimenting with all kinds of drugs, and one night it went really bad, really quick, and my dad, who was a strict disciplinarian, I, I thought he was going to kill me. And instead of killing me, what my dad did that night was my dad just sat with me on my bed and he, he told me he loved me. He held me all night. He kept telling me that the hallucinations I were having were not real and he was there to protect me and he wouldn't leave me. And he didn't until I fell asleep sometime, you know, the next morning. And when I woke up the next day, my dad just came to me and all he said to me was, I'm really glad you're okay, son. And uh, that was it. No lectures, no, I told you so, no anger. He's just really glad it was okay. And that was when I saw God for the first time. I received real grace and, and that moment began to change my life. Because what I learned that night is that I really was his beloved son, just because I was his son. Not because of what I did, or what I didn't do. And I learned that night that I would always be his beloved son, no matter what I did or didn't do. And that was a massive moment in my life. And it was that moment, along with a couple other moments that were very similar. <laughs> I, I was, I had a bad, <laughs> I had a bad go of it there for a few years. But along with a couple other moments in that moment, it was transforming. And that is when I began to leave the enslavement to the law behind and I started to embrace grace and started living so much differently. Not out of fear, but out of desire to live into grace. And that's when Paul's words in this text here this morning started to make sense to me and started to ring true. Since you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I think this might be one of the most important revelations of what the gospel means for us. And I know we've heard this, but I'm hoping this morning we can hear this just in a slightly new way that can open this up deeper for us. Because this is both massively important on a personal level as well as a community level. And I want to talk about both this morning and I want to start with the personal. On a deeply personal level, this gives us the most primal desires of our being. To be loved unconditionally. That's what lies deep inside all of us. Unconditional, unending love. Just because we exist is what this truth tells us that Paul's talking about. Try to think about that. Because it's so hard to get there. It's so hard. Paul is saying, just because we exist, we are loved unconditionally. No performance is necessary. God is our father, or we could say our daddy. This is a very strange, strange word that Paul uses. A wonderfully strange word, Abba. This is actually an Aramaic idiomatic phrase, and yet here, think about this, Paul uses it with his Greek friends who probably didn't even know Aramaic and probably never could have figured out a subtlety like an idiom in another language. 
But Paul uses it because this is what Jesus used when he taught his disciples the name for God. And if Jesus taught his disciples, listen, God's your daddy, then Paul was going to teach everyone else that that's the exact same thing. We are now family. This is what redemption means. God is our father. That is not a formal, official, scriptural name for God. It is this radical, unbelievable truth that was revealed through the Christ. Think about this. It doesn't matter what we do, it just matters that we are his children. And when we grasp that, when we grasp that, it allows us to live like he would want us to. Because grasping that means we're free from fear and don't need to act like a slave who is afraid of their master, but can live fearless, loved by their father. Is that, is that starting to deeply resonate? I hope. I hope. And, and I want to pause here for a second. I'm aware not all of us have incredible memories of our dads. Or the idea of a daddy doesn't resonate deeply. But the reality is, none of us have a perfect human father. None of us. Yes, I told a story about a moment when my dad, through grace, acted amazingly godlike. But he wasn't always like that. He was a human dad, like everybody else. We all long for something so beautiful and so powerful. For some of us, that's a bigger... It's just... It, I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Regardless of what our own experience with a human father is, we all need this father. We all need this perfect father. And it exists. It exists. So, for those people then who consciously practiced appeasement theology, have you ever thought about how, you know, grace in our day and age is radical? How many Christians do you know that reject the theology of grace, right? Because it's so radical. Well, and, and we've been, Christianity's been talking about grace for 2,000 years, and we still reject it. Imagine these people that consciously practiced appeasement theology. They went to the temples of all the different gods and sacrificed as much as they could and worked to appease gods all the time. And Paul comes along and says, yeah, no, none of that's necessary. None of it. Your God loves you. And even for us now who subconsciously practice it, this is radical good news. We are children of God. And here's the best part. He makes us his children. We don't have to do anything. He makes us his children. It's all his doing and it's all grace. And the reality that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Have you, have, have you guys ever thought about this? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Have you ever thought about what that means? So I came across someone explaining this. Timothy Keller, actually, who, this is, just think about this. The astonishing bottom line of sonship is that God now treats us as if we have done everything Jesus has done. We can approach God as if we were as beautiful, 
heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. All that is ours. Just let that sit there for a second. And here's something to think about. If you read that quote, and there's a part of you that starts to get really uncomfortable that that might be pushing the limits of grace, guess what that's an indication of? That deep inside, we don't trust grace. That we would rather appease God. This is what it means. That's the radicalness of the gospel that we are all trying to dive into and discover. What an incredible thing. And here's the best part. This, this being an heir, this having all of this, is just like becoming a child. It's a gift. It's nothing we have to do. You don't have to continue to perform to continue to have this sonship, this being co-heirs with Christ. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on his love, and that has already been proven as eternal and unconditional. He died for us. He makes us his children. He keeps us his children. And he makes us like his children. That's good news. That's the best news ever in a world in which all we want to do is perform and are asked to perform. There is one place we don't have to perform. This is life-changing personal truth. I know we talk about it a lot, but I talk about it a lot because we need to hear it over and over and over again so it gets deep inside of us. Because we all have doubts about who we are, we have doubts about how we live, about what we've done, the choices we've made, all of us, right? That's just part of living in a world that, of, like ours. There is one place we can go where we don't have to doubt anything other because it's just there. God loves us. Life changing. Now, there is more. Now let's go to the community side. Because this very idea of being a child of God speaks deeply to community. <clears throat> and this is what our retreat was all about last weekend. So, Reuben and Alyssa, sorry, this is going to be a little redundant. The, the second half of this this morning because you two heard it last week, but that's okay. God is community. God is family, right? That is what our doctrine of the Trinity tells us. God has always been in relationship. God was never not in a relationship. Think about that. The uncreated was never not in a relationship. It's always been. He was never alone. This entire universe... God was never alone. He was always in relationship. And God wants us to be community family. In relationship. Paul knew that even in his day, human community, human family was under constant threat. And so many people then, and so many people now, and so many people always have suffered for not having family or community. The greatest evil in this world is concerned with the destruction of relationship. You can go back to the very beginning of sin when Cain killed Abel. The destruction of family. And it has not stopped since. There is nothing else that evil is concerned with except the destruction of human relationship. 
Because relationship is God. Relationship is divine. And this is why Jesus constantly talked about love others. Because he didn't need to talk about the law. Because when you love others, you don't destroy relationship. That's the point. And if you don't love others, it doesn't matter what you're doing with the law. You can be perfect and you're destroying relationships. That's how the law gets used to destroy relationships. Then it mustn't be the law. And we talked about a couple weeks ago a great thing about how the law is over anyway. Okay. So, humans were created to be in community, both with each other and God. Think about the Genesis story. In Genesis 1, God creates, and he calls it good. But get to Genesis 2, and God himself says, oh, it's actually not good, because man is alone. God said that. It is not good for man to be alone. So, to, to quote Tim Challies, though perfect sinless and in perfect harmony with God, humans still needed to be in community with other humans. Think about that. The only one thing that wasn't good in God's creation was man was alone. No relationship. So God builds relationship. Though the world has changed since the advent of sin, the need for community remains. Paul understood this. And by using this most powerful of terms, we are God's children, he is speaking to the entire biblical narrative. The heart of the gospel. Here's Paul's vision of the truth as we are all to be family. Here's Paul's vision of the truth. We're not to be Jew and Gentile. We're not to be male or female. We're not to be slave or free. We're not to be any distinction, just one in Christ. Think about that. That's a beautiful vision. And this is what the entire biblical narrative is about. It's about community. And by the time we get to the New Testament, there are two terms in the New Testament that are everywhere. Each other and one another. And they speak to community. And they are always in the context of interpersonal relationships with community. And you know, I want to make a side note here. Because this continues to amaze me. And today, and this week, the last couple of weeks studying this. I can't believe the way Christians make mountains out of molehills. Christians will take three verses in our Bible. Five, depending on how you look at it. And that is the most important conversation in our culture today. Five verses. And yet things that the Bible is completely and utterly concerned with, we ignore. It boggles my mind. Scripture is consumed with one another and each other. Consumed with it. Genesis to Revelation. Cain, where's your brother? But you listen to a lot of Christian dialogue today, you'd think God asked Cain a totally different question. The biblical narrative is full of the idea of community in this context of this. So here's what I want to do now to end my teaching today. I'm going to do something I did at the retreat. Although by the time I did it at the retreat, it was just a listen, Reuben, so it's going to be new for everybody else. Okay? I'm going to read many of these verses in the New Testament. And as I do, I'm just going to walk amongst us. And if I can, I'll I'll put my hand on you. If not, I'll just stand near you and read it. And I want to encourage you to think deeply about each verse. 
Not just the ones I'm reading to you. I don't want just think about the ones I'm reading to you. Think about all of these. These are from the Bible. I didn't write these. These are our scripture that we claim to believe in. And I want you to ask this question. What is God trying to really teach us about the point of being human? What is God really trying to teach us about the point of being human? We are the children of God. God treats us as his children, not as strangers, not as someone else's child. He treats us as his child. Forever loved. And he expects us to treat each other as brothers and sisters, not as strangers. Think about this. And I know this is sort of where the rubber gets, hits the road for all of Christianity, for all of Christians. This is why it's so much easier to just go to some sort of appeasement theology and legalistic understanding of the Bible because then we don't have to love each other and we don't have to engage each other's lives. We can live our own little worlds and, and criticize others and not help others and not be involved in their lives because we can ignore all of this scripture. But this is exactly how the earliest followers of Jesus understood what the gospel meant. We, we have Luke's witness from Acts. Luke said this, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. But here's the thing, if you're a little cynical about Luke because you think he was partial, here's a letter that Aristides, an Athenian statesman, wrote to Rome about the Christians that he witnessed in his day. And Aristides wasn't a Christian. It is the Christians who acknowledge God. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they do not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them, and in this way they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness, any one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. This is the rule of the life of Christians. And this is their manner of life. So let me ask you this. If someone was going to describe your life, would they describe you that way? If someone was going to describe this community, would they describe us that way? That's what it meant to be a Christian in the first generation of Christianity. The people who heard it from Jesus directly or from people who heard it from Jesus directly. It's incredible and it's beautiful and it's challenging. And as you hear all of these verses sort of brought out and put together, just think about this. And don't feel bad. This isn't to make anyone feel bad about how they're living right this second. This is about... Did, did I not have the right side? Oh, no, I did. I had that side. This is to realize this is our journey. This is where God is taking us. This is where the Holy Spirit in us is trying to bring us. This is the growth and development of Christianity because this is what it means to be redeemed and to be transformed.
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Let no debt remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brothers or sisters. <clears throat> Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind. Serve one another in love. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate and humble. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with each other. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Bear with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. 
Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Brothers, do not slander one another. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Pretty powerful when you put it all together, isn't it? And that's not all of it. Let's rediscover the narrative of our Bible that we love so much. This world needs it. This world does not need half of what Christians are talking about today. It needs the story of the good news. We are God's children. We need to love each other like that. And we need to let everyone else know how much God loves them and that they're welcome into the family.